Hi, I'm Simon Russell, founder of Behavioural Finance Australia. I'm here with Stephen Hubbard, independent consultant to the superannuation industry. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Simon. Good to be here. Stephen and I share an interest in behavioural finance. We met several years back now when Stephen reached out to me for a coffee after reading one of my articles. And we've been sharing our ideas and experiences, particularly across the financial services space and particularly uh, with regard to super funds ever since. Um, so today we're going to talk briefly about the application of behavioural finance to improving super fund member engagement. Is it important and what are some of the barriers we need to overcome? So firstly, Stephen, can you tell us why we should be, be concerned about member engagement at all? So member engagement a, a really difficult term to use because I think there's a sort of almost a motherhood type attitude towards, yes, we need better engaged members. And if better engagement means better decisions and better outcomes, absolutely. Um, but we also can see more member engagement can lead to worse outcomes. Um, an example might be a member that feels they're very engaged and switches um, between investment options quite, quite regularly throughout the year, chasing returns, but actually gets a worse outcome because of the chasing return behaviours. The super fund might classify that member as highly engaged if their metric for engagement is how many times you switch or how many times you check your balance. So I think it's important. Yes, member engagement's important, but what does it mean? How do you define it? How do you measure it? And then how do you, as a super fund, convert engagement to behaviours? So what would you be using as a metric, do you think? I think it's a really important question. I, I probably haven't got the right answer, but I think it's important to have, or the full answer, but it's important to relate it to behaviours and outcomes. So if a member is switching a lot and they end up with the worst individual return for the year, make sure that's being reported to them. Or in fact, why don't you alert, have an alert popping up if a member is making their third switch for the year or their second switch for the year? rather than just saying, well, we had a 14% return for the year, everyone's done really well. And the problem with that is on average everyone's done well, but certain members may not do as well as others because of their behaviours, even though they might have been high, highly engaged members. Yeah, it's interesting. I must admit, some of the metrics that I see when I'm talking to client engagement or marketing groups are click-through rates on mm. emails, uh, open rates, how many people attended the seminar, how many people attended the webinar, uh, for example, but it's less likely to be about, well, as a result of this email, how many people actually contributed? What was the mm. behaviour beyond clicking? Yeah. What was the behaviour? And therefore, yeah. uh, what is the outcome? Yeah. And, and I certainly have seen funds, and for many years, I used to do member education many, many years ago, and one of the things we'd always do is track the members attending the seminars, what their behaviours were in the three months following the seminar. So if Consolidation was a key message in that seminar. Actual track the amount of consolidation or phone calls about consolidation. Um, if it was making additional contributions, track that information. Mm. So find a way of connecting member behaviour to the click-through or the attendance of the seminar or opening an email. So don't just stop there, but mm. follow through the behaviours. And there's no reason why you know, that can't be done. Well, yeah, theoretically there's no reason. Obviously, there's mm -hmm. some, sometimes there are other technology and other constraints, uh, which I think we'll get onto uh, as we go through. But have you seen, when you have measured things, have you seen things backfire in those sort of cases? 
Yeah, I, I think an interesting example, I've talked about the serial switcher before. Um, another one's insurance, where funds find that when they do any mailing or information about insurance, people suddenly find out they have insurance and a claim comes in, a disability claim comes in. Um, some fu- a lot of funds will see a bit of a spike in exits within a month or two of the annual statements going out because the annual statement reminds them they've got superannuation with that fund and then they feel like they should do something about it and often that something is to move away from that fund. Now, that might be the better outcome for the member, but it's certainly not an outcome the fund is hoping to achieve. Yeah, I actually did see some data from one of the funds that they shared with me where the switching behaviour was, it just had two massive spikes throughout the year which corresponded with the member statements mm. hitting the inboxes or the post mm. boxes of those yeah. of those people. And which I, I think is fascinating because the, the member statements themselves, theoretically this is an ideal time for us to communicate with a member and uh, there's important information, all that sort of stuff. Mm. But the way we couch the terms, they'll couch what's on that statement so uh, how we present returns, what period of mm. returns we're showing, do we provide any, a projected balance in retirement or projected income in retirement? And there was a great example from CBUS, I think, uh, tested in the Australian market fairly recently, the benefit of showing a projected uh, income in retirement compared with a balance in retirement. $500,000 is your projected balance. Gosh, that seems like a lot. I don't really need to worry. Well, what does that mean in terms of income? Mm. Well, actually, it's only 25,000, well, it's only $500 a week or whatever. Mm. Oh, gosh, that seems like a lot less. Now maybe I should, uh, I should contribute a bit more. Mm. And I'm familiar with that research, and, it, uh, and there's been similar research done in the US as well, that you know, if you give people the right information, they will make better decisions. Um, you know, maybe one day we'll have virtual reality goggles where in your, with your current balance, here's the life you'll live in retirement, but if you just put a little bit of batter in, um, we can show you what your better life will look like. Um, or a holograph of you know your life on your current balance versus your projected balance if you make additional contributions. Any way we can make it more relevant. Yeah, and and in those cases also potentially more tangible, more visible, yeah. all yeah. those sorts of things. Um, I agree. Although I must admit, there seems to be so many sort of low tech solutions that are still mm-hmm. hanging around the industry that we can perhaps get to uh, before we get to what did you say, holographs or holograms <laughs> and virtual reality. Yeah, I mean, I, I did see recently that one of the funds had done a, a major technology project to be able to pipe their investment returns onto member statements so they could show the short-term returns, the six-month returns, um, to, to which I was somewhat aghast that the the expenditure of the, in, the, in this case, the technology-inclined engagement project actually was probably, given the behavioural research, tilting people and nudging people towards responding to those short-term returns mm. in ways that were likely to be adverse to their, to their um, ultimate end outcomes. The other example which we were speaking about offline, um, which to me just demonstrates that it's not funds necessarily doing the wrong thing deliberately. In fact, in most cases, I don't Mm -hmm. think that's the case at all. But it's it's sometimes just not being aware of the way that they're couching information. And one of my favourite examples of this is is a major fund CIO who was trying to um, allay the concerns of members about some recent market volatility. I I forget whether it was... Greek bonds or, or what it was, Brexit or something had happened recently. The market had come back a bit. Um, there was obviously some concerns by some members that their returns had diminished and maybe that this was a particularly risky period for them. And the CI of this fund who was being interviewed by their marketing and client engagement people had said something along the lines of, well, we've noticed a bunch of people, some of our members have been switching to cash in response to these market, this market volatility. Um, really this isn't the best outcome, you should maintain your investments for the long term. 
And of course, the problem with that is that the social norm that's being conveyed in that case is, look, other people are switching mm-hmm. you to cash. And yes, despite the fact that this rational argument is that you should then subsequently ignore what other people are doing, well, that's not how the mind works. We're going to be influenced by other people. Really what the fund CI in that case should have done is to say, most people actually haven't changed their investment option, which isn't necessarily an active choice not to do anything, but it's true. Most people would have stayed in that same investment choice because most people actually just do nothing. And that then communicates an appropriate norm to say to other people, well, yes, this is, this is what most people are doing. Most people are just writing this sort of, this, this sort of volatility out. And I could imagine another conversation going on at the same fund where somebody else who's responsible for member engagement will be saying, oh, great, member engagement's increased over the last couple of months because we're seeing a lot more switching. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, you're going to have some people in the fund getting encouraged and rewarded for increased engagement, whereas others are trying to dampen that down because it's leading to wrong behaviour. So again, back to what we were talking about earlier, that need to link engagement to to, um, behaviour. And often that behaviour is do nothing. Mm. Um, So I like to think about behaviour as, member behaviour as doing the right thing at the right time. Mm. And that right thing at that certain time for some people might be doing nothing. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with what you described. I did write an article a year or two back which had eight myths about Superfund member engagement, and one of those quote-unquote myths was more member engagement is better than less. Mm. And and by that, I didn't sort of mean that necessarily less member engagement is better. It, I, I sort of guess I meant that more member engagement isn't as good as we necessarily think it is. Yes, it's good in some cases where we've lined it up with member behaviours and member outcomes, but we don't do that as often mm. as perhaps we should. And, you know, I'm a bit concerned by, um, say, the APRA member outcome tests, which are very much focused on fees and returns and those sort of measures. And they're all important, but too many funds feel that I've got good net investment returns, I've got, you know, efficient fees, low cost, um, I've got some good products and services, I've got insurance, good insurance premiums, but that as is, is important but not sufficient to get good outcomes. Um, and an example might be, I'm a 20-year-old, I'm highly engaged with my super, I decide to switch my money from the default option into cash because I'm a very conservative, my risk appetite is very low, and for the next 40 years I sit in cash in a fund that's getting great returns in their my super, but I get a bad outcome in retirement. Um, that's not good. So how, again, how can we intervene for those? How can we use the technology to find those members and to then nudge them, talk to them, guide them, educate them on what might be a better outcome for them? Yeah, so if, you, if, if and I agree with what you said, if member engagement is really important or can be really important, certainly for some members of some funds, why do you think it doesn't perhaps get as much attention as it deserves? Partly it's too hard to think of individuals in your fund. Um, Funds tend to very much focus on the average member and talk about averages. So on average, we've had a 12% return for the year, and that's fantastic, and our fees are really low, so on average, it's a good outcome. And I don't disagree with that, but um, we need to break that down and and realise that all members are different, Um, and it's not just breaking it up into four or five um, cohorts as well based on age. It needs to be, again, behavioural balances. Those sort of things should be driving those cohorts as well. And have you seen any other constraints, do you think? Other things that are standing in the way of better member engagement? Technology is a big issue. Um, I'm not sure if it's an alibi or an excuse or a real reason. It's an element of all three where funds say they want to do more, but they can't because of their third-party administrator. 
they can't get access to the data or everything takes too long and they can't they can't respond quickly to an event or, or do or intervene when they need to and you know there's an element of truth to that and there's also an element of it's just too hard mm. and you know we can't forget compliance and regulations um, you know there's a bit of a fear that am I giving financial advice um, maybe the answer is let's put some fences around the fences around the fences so we don't even stray close to giving um, personal advice. Um, and, and again, it stops people being responding quickly to things that are going on in the markets and in members' lives. Yeah, uh, the compliance one particularly rings a bell for me or resonates because it's, it's often difficult, isn't it, when you've got someone who's trying to change the way a communication is framed for a member and yet then you've got the compliance person, who, not to be critical necessarily because they've got their job to do and they've got the sort of the bosses and the reporting processes and risks and all sorts of things they need to consider. But that can be a real constraint. Yeah. And to me, part of it, I think, is, is getting that risk and compliance team or person on this journey to understand well, when you give them this 12-page disclosure document, or that's probably there's an understatement, 98-page disclosure document, or 600-word disclaimer, <clears throat> or whatever it is, that actually that's going to create information overload, it's going to mean people ignore it, they do nothing, or they take a simple shortcut, um, so it's going to lead to some adverse outcomes. I'll just throw a couple more at you and see what you think of these as well, which I've experienced. One is, I think, that a lot of this sort of stuff is just, I, I think, unsexy. So when you're looking at a form, then the way that you create the categories on the form, the way you step people through a process, I mean, that is just not the sort of thing that you're going to encounter at a conference. Let's have a conference conversation about form design. No, you're not going to get any attendees there. But that's the sort of thing that actually does drive behaviour. So how do you elevate that in, in, in funds, I think, is a real challenge. It is, and some funds now are starting to become aware of some of the behavioural research into form designs. You know, simple things I've seen, I don't know if any funds do this, but I remember reading uh, uh, some research saying that people are more likely to fill in honestly if they sign first rather than sign at the end. Um, there, is a couple of, there are a couple of funds that I'm associated with that I've seen them do testing with members online. So um, they'll have a certain group of members subscribe to, a, to an email or a digital platform, and there are third-party platforms that provide this, this um, facility, and they'll, have, you know, they'll select 10,000 members or 5,000 members that are representative of the whole thing. And, and I've been involved in one of these activities where they were redesigning an annual statement. They actually sent out, and it was about a 10 or 15-question process where they were showing different versions, different arrangements, different language, um, and I could select which ones I preferred or what did I think they meant when they said X, Y, Z, and um, then they collated all that feedback and, and used that to redesign their statement. Now, I, I did promise to keep this short, so I think we might leave it there, but we are sort of starting to touch more on the solutions. To, we've raised a lot of problems, but now starting to touch more on the solutions. So I think if, if it's all right with you, Stephen, we'll come back and have a second conversation around some, some of the strategies that we can use to employ in funds to, to create better member engagement. So on that note, I'll, we'll leave it there. Um, if anyone would like to get in touch with you, Stephen, what's the best way? Um, I'm pretty prominent on LinkedIn and Twitter. Uh, that is Steve, true. Stephen Huppert um, on both. Um, P-H, Stephen P with a P-H, H-U-P-P-E-R-T, find me there and uh, engage in some of this conversation. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are and any examples that people have seen that work.
That is true. You are a social media guru. Um, that is definitely true. Um, and for people who are interested in my content, uh, I've written a book recently, Behavioral Finance, A Guide for Financial Advisors. As the title suggests, it's a guide for financial advisors. Uh, however, there's a lot of content in there related to super funds, uh, financial literacy, client engagement sort of stuff. There's, there's all sorts of uh, strategies we've discussed today. Uh, it's available online through Amazon Book Depository and others. Uh, or they can get in touch with me on my website, behavioralfinanceaustralia.com.au. Thanks for your time, Stephen. A pleasure.